You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. This is the Surveyor's Hour on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Lucas. Uh, I'm a land surveyor and attorney at law. And we'll spend the next hour talking about surveying uh, and land surveyors. As always, your questions and comments are welcome. You can send them to Jeff at americaswebradio.com. And you can find out more about me uh, at my personal website, www.lucasandcompany.com. Check out the website. Check out our resources. uh, Check out our programs that we have, continuing education programs we have. Um, Okay. So I hope everybody had a happy Thanksgiving and uh, with family and friends um, didn't eat too much maybe. Um, but uh, And watch the football. Okay, we're, we've got football this year, so we have plenty to be thankful for. Uh, all right. Well, uh, last couple of uh, programs, we have been going over um, what I call better, uh, better business practices uh, and the law. Uh, I have a program that I do uh, with that name, and I thought we would... Uh, that's what we would do is go over uh, that program to a certain extent, not the complete thing. But um, <clears throat> what we have talked about over the last couple of weeks is uh, contracts and uh, written contracts. And we talked about last week uh, the letter of understanding. And uh, maybe if, if that's the letter of understanding is too much, then um, just, a, just an email uh, understanding uh, between you and the person ordering uh, the survey <clears throat> it's better than nothing um, and as we discussed last week I, I think one of the one of the primary problems with um, uh, with with surveying is um, and the, the problems that surveyors cause is uh, due to lack of lack of a contract um, the surveyor not having a contract, other than an oral contract, um, agreeing to survey the property, a piece of property for a certain amount of money in a certain time frame. And I think that um, when the surveyor runs into problems uh, and runs out of money, that shortcuts are made. And this is this could be one of the leading causes of uh, some of the problems that we, that we discuss with uh, boundary disputes. And most of the boundary dispute cases that we do discuss Involve uh, a bad survey, uh, a survey that just doesn't make any sense. And we've talked about some of those uh, bad surveys on this program before in the past. Uh, but we're moving on. I want to get through this program, or at least the parts of it that I want to discuss uh, this week and move on to something uh, new next week. So we had gotten down to, um, we went through our contract basics we talk about the elements of a written contract, a, a valid contract. Um, <clears throat> we talked about the letter of understanding and uh, just sending an email, uh, sending an email that, uh, that outlines the understanding between you and your client. And we got down to a case um, that I usually go over, a good contracts case called Hunter v. Wilshire. It uh, went to the Alabama Supreme Court in 2005. Uh, it, it's not really a uh, there's there's a survey involved tangentially, but it's not it's not a surveyor or a boundary uh, contract case. It, it's just a pure contract case, 
and um, th there aren't really uh, there's only one graphic that goes with it so this is going to be relatively easy to imagine um, over the uh, over the airways here uh, if you would like to sort of follow along you could get out a sheet of paper and uh, just keep track of a timeline just put a uh, a horizontal line across your piece of paper and we're going to go through um, the action in the case which is it all had to do with a contract contract for the uh, buying and selling of a house um, <clears throat> so the, the, the reason I go over this case is because it's a great contract case it has a lot of great contract law in it and so just to um, to hit some of the highlights here, um, what we call the black letter law, or, or in my newsletter we call the head notes, um, I'm, I'm going to touch on some of the contract law that will be discussed in this case. Um, the requisite elements of a valid contract, and they include an offer, an acceptance, consideration, and mutual assent to the terms essential to the formation of a contract. Uh, so those are the basic elements of a contract and mutual assent in a written with a written contract is generally the signatures of um, of the contracting parties, but that doesn't have to be so. Uh, uh, you can get oral assent and you will have and if you have uh, an offer and acceptance consideration and oral consent of the parties, then you have you have a valid oral contract. But as we've discussed, uh, the problem with an oral contract, a lot of problems with an oral contract, but one of the biggest ones is miscommunication. What were the terms of the contract? Okay, there's an implied covenant that you're going to, this is going to be important, and you will know, after we go through this case, you'll know more about contract law uh, than uh, Hunter's. Um, than Hunter's attorneys uh, in the case. There's an implied covenant that neither party shall do anything that will have the effect of destroying or injuring the rights of the other party to receive the fruits of the contract. In every contract, there exists an implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. So when we go through the facts of this case, you're going to you're going to you're going to see that uh, Wilshire, the two parties are Hunter and Wilshire. Hunter is the buyer of the purchaser of the of the house, and Wilshire is the broker who is handling the sale, uh, handling the mortgage for uh, for the bank. Uh, and you're going to you're going to wonder uh, about the good faith and the fair dealings that took place in this contract. An unsigned contract cannot be enforced by either of the parties. However, completely it may express their mutual agreement if it was also agreed that the contract should not be binding until signed by both. All right, so uh, <clears throat> we talked about our letter of understanding or even writing an email. Um, that would not be a signed contract, or it could be signed by you. The letter uh, of understanding would be signed by you uh, sort of unilaterally. And it can be it can be enforced if it expresses their mutual agreement. But and what they're saying here with this uh, with this black letter law, what they're saying with this um, this head note is if the contract itself says it will not be binding until uh, all the parties uh, have put their signature to the to the document, then that's a that uh, that is enforceable. That is enforceable. So. 
if you put a term like that in your contract, this contract will not be binding until signed by all the parties. And it it doesn't matter, as the court's saying here, it doesn't matter how completely it, it expresses your mutual agreement. Uh, it will not be valid if not signed. When parties execute successive agreements and the two agreements cover the same subject matter, and include inconsistent terms, the later agreement supersedes the earlier agreement. This is called the battle, uh, the battle of the documents. Um, so you have two contracts, and this this uh, this could happen uh, very easily in the surveying context. You send your contract over to your client for them to sign, and they sign it and send it back, but then they send their contract over uh, for whatever reason, um, and they say, well, listen, we signed your contract, now you sign our contract, and you go ahead and sign uh, their contract, then if the two contracts con- conflict, if they, have, uh, if they overlap in some respect, uh, having to do with maybe liability or, uh, or the, the, the consideration, the total consideration, then the latter contract, the last contract, uh, will rule over the previous contract, so you have to, you have to be careful there um, when you're dealing with with contracts or successive contracts or successive agreements. Um, the la- the last agreement, uh, the uh, the latter agreements will overwrite and can in some cases overwrite terms and conditions in an earlier agreement. Okay, that's that's. So I wanted you to be aware of this black letter law before we get into the uh, facts of the case. So uh, James and Sylvia Hunter, they wanted to purchase a house, and this was down in South Alabama, I think uh, Theodore, Alabama, near Mobile. So uh, we're getting to the first agreement here. Uh, Wilshire, again the broker for the uh, mortgage company, uh, sent over to the Hunters. Uh, the, uh, the, per- the purchase agreement, okay? And that agreement was sent over on October 7th of 2002, and it was unsigned. Uh, Wilshire had his uh, agent, Remax Advantage, uh, the agent with Remax Advantage, had them uh, run this uh, purchase agreement over to the hunters uh, to purchase the house. Now, this first agreement or this first document uh, had uh, had several terms in it, but uh, the essential terms were the price of the house was going to be uh, one hundred eighteen thousand nine hundred. Uh, the hunters would have to put down a five hundred dollar deposit, and the contract expires on October ninth, two thousand and two. That's just two days later. Uh, it, on October seventh, the hunter signed it, uh, sent it back to Wilshire. Wilshire didn't do anything with the contract. Uh, then, uh, two days after the uh, purchase agreement expired by its own terms, on October 11th, uh, the real estate agent ran back over with an addendum to the purchase agreement. Um, and on October 11th, um, uh, the, the primary terms to that ad- uh, addendum were that the purchase price was changed to... Uh, 100, 119500 and that the earnest money was now be $6,000. Uh, 
Uh, so on October 11th, uh, the hunters signed the addendum to the purchase agreement, and they handed over $6,000 in earnest money. Now uh, a little bit of time goes by, and for whatever reason, um, for whatever reason, and we don't know exactly when, but uh, the hunters got the keys to the house, and, and they started making improvements uh, to the house. So they're getting uh, they're getting invested in this house um, with uh, spending money on it. Uh, and in the surveying context, this this is easy to uh, to see. Um, uh, uh, to see a parallel with uh, doing surveying work, you you have a contract on October seventh. You have a contract on October seventh. Um, then there's uh, an additional um, an addendum to that contract, uh, and uh, you still don't have a signed contract back from your client. Um, and you get to work on the project. You start sending field crews out there. Um, that's a that's a big that's a big no no. You don't want to get in, invested uh, in a project until you have all of your paperwork done. Okay, we'll uh, we'll pick up. We got a break coming up here in a few seconds, and uh, we will pick up uh, on this uh, on the action in this case, Hunter versus Wilshire, Alabama Supreme Court, uh, two thousand and five. And you're listening to America's Web Radio. And want to remind everybody, this is a great day to order those quick steaks. The number is 1-800-438-0387. Get that pen and paper. It's 800-438-0387. Or you can go online to quicksteak.com. Order the quick steaks or the markers that are fantastic. You want to stock up a little bit, and that way you can write them off in 2020. So... Let's hear the official sound of Quick Stakes, and then we'll come back and go back to Jeff. Hold on. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800 438 or go to quickstake.com. That's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. One last reminder, at 1 o'clock we have Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. It's amazing that people have already forgotten about Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and yet uh, we're going to be there reminding you about them. So with that being said, stay tuned for Jeff. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, folks. This is um, the Surveyor's Hour on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Lucas. All right, we're talking about the contract case of uh, Hunter versus Wilshire, uh, Alabama Supreme Court, 2005. Hunter, the Hunters are purchasing a house. Uh, you know, this is the American dream: purchasing the house. Wilshire is a broker for the mortgage company, and uh, we're working through some uh, some contract issues here. Okay, so. First document uh, delivered to Hunters was the "quote unquote" purchase agreement. It was delivered on October seventh, two thousand and two. 
and signed on October 7, 2002, given back to the real estate agent who took it to Wilshire. Wilshire never signed, did not sign the contract. So the contract had uh, uh, this purchase agreement had 118.9 was the price for the property, the house, a $500 deposit, and the contract, the purchase agreement also said that it expires on October 9, 2002. Uh, next uh, bit of action on our timeline is on October 11, 2002, <clears throat> the real estate agent brought over an addendum to, to the purchase agreement, addendum to purchase agreement. It increased the um, sale price from 118.9 to 119.5. It required $6,000 in earnest money to be uh, set down. Also, and I didn't um, tell you, there were a couple of other minor issues. Uh, the buyer is to furnish a pre-qualification letter in five days with full loan approval by 10-3102, October 31st, 2000. And two, seller will credit $400 for purchase of home warranty. So um, that's what that's the addendum to the purchase agreement. Uh, those were the primary terms in that. So the hunters signed the addendum. They forked over $6,000. Now they're getting invested in this thing. And somehow they get the keys. They, they get the, the keys to the car. They get the keys to the house. And they go over there and uh, start making improvements. Uh, that's a big, big, big mistake. Uh, this this deal isn't done. So far, the hunters have signed two agreements, and they have gotten nothing back uh, from Wilshire. So then uh, a little time rolls on, and October 31st, 2002 rolls by, and we go to November 4th. And the Rudy Max uh, real estate agent uh, for Wilshire uh, comes uh, hustling over to the Hunters, uh, and they provided, um, uh, a, and he puts the the real estate agent puts a new document in front of the Hunters, entitled Real Estate Purchase Contract Counter Offer and Addendum. Now Wilshire hasn't signed anything yet. So far, Hunter is the only one signing any documents. Uh, so Wilshire had not signed any of the forms. According to the Hunters, Rice, this is the real estate agent, advised uh, James Hunter that the counteroffer was necessary, quote, in order to set up, uh, to set the closing up. Now, is anything smelling fishy to you by now? I mean, is the... Do you get the sense that uh, Wilshire is uh, is uh, is trying to maybe trying to pull something off here? I mean, it's it's awful suspicious. They they brought over three documents and Wilshire hasn't signed one of them yet. So Hunter signed the counteroffer, and the counteroffer stated that it would quote be made part of and incorporated into the contract dated ten thirty one oh two between Wilshire and the Hunters. Okay, there is no contract dated 10-31-02. There was a, a, a purchase agreement dated October 7th, 02. There was an addendum to the purchase agreement signed on October 11th, 2002. Um, and it had a loan approval date. They had to get a loan approved. The hunters had to be approved for a loan by 10-31-02. That's the only 10-31-02 date there is here. 
<clears throat> the counteroffer provided that if Wilshire defaulted under the terms of the contract or this addendum, the hunter shall be entitled to the return of their earnest money as their sole and exclusive remedy. All right. That should be catching your attention. That should. What, what would normally be... Um, uh, would normally um, be the remedies um, uh, for breach of contract. Well, uh, standard uh, uh, standard uh, uh, remedies uh, under contract would be applicable uh, for the breach, such as specific performance, uh, for instance. A specific performance is a, a valid... Um, uh, a valid remedy in a uh, buy and sell of real estate. Uh, you can force uh, the seller uh, if the if the seller if there's problems with uh, actually uh, providing clear title uh, and the seller and you're under contract to buy uh, a chunk of dirt, say lot lot ten, block eight, um, Garfunkel subdivision, and all of the, all of the lots in that in that block are all the same. They've all been cleared. Um, you can't tell the difference between lot 10, lot 11, or lot 9, but you are under contract for lot 10, and for whatever reason, let's just say uh, the developer uh, has a lien. Uh, the, the, uh, the developer has a lien on lot 10, and um, the owner is trying to sell you lot 10, but then finds out that he can't sell you lot 10 because of the lien. He, and the owner uh, then wants to just sell you lot nine. Uh, one of your, your one of your remedies, a typical contract remedy uh, under the common law, would be specific performance. You can force that seller to sell you lot ten, which means that they would have to clear the lien. The, uh, the owner of the land would have to clear the lien on lot ten and, and sell you uh, and sell you that lot. That's called specific performance. Uh, and you're going to we're going to see here in a minute. Uh, that's what Hunter attempts to do: uh, specific performance to sell the house when Wilshire eventually refuses to sell the house uh, because of the problems with uh, with the property. Uh, Hunter then um, tries to get specific performance and force Wilshire to sell the house that ends up having liens on it, and it's, the house actually ends up. Uh, they did a survey, and the house ends up uh, encroaching on the next door lot. Uh, but because the contract, the uh, counter offer an addendum uh, to the purchase agreement specifically states this contract or this addendum, the hunters shall be entitled to return of their earnest money as their sole and exclusive remedy. Now, when the hunter signed this contract with that clause in there, their only remedy, if Wilshire can't sell the property or doesn't want to sell the property, uh, their only remedy will be um, to get their six thousand uh, dollars back, their six thousand uh, dollars earnest money back. This contract also um, had this clause in there: um, closing date, time of essence. Closing to occur owner before November 20th, 2002, seller shall have the right and seller's sole discretion to extend the closing date or void the contract if the seller determines that it is unable to convey good and insurable title to the property by a reputable title company at 
reg at the regular rates. It also had this clause: acceptance. This counteroffer is made subject to seller's senior management approval and shall not become binding a binding contract until signed by the seller. Seller reserves the right to continue to offer and herein describe property for sale and accept any other offer acceptable to seller prior to full senior management approval. So it has those two uh, clauses in this contract. <clears throat> the first clause is basically saying uh, that Wilshire can get out of this contract, doesn't have to perform, uh, if it determines, if Wilshire determines that it's unable to convey good, uh, good uh, and insurable title. Also, the agreement will not be binding until both parties, no matter how clearly, remember this was part of our, uh, our uh, black letter law, no matter how much the agreement uh, or how clearly the agreement expressed the terms uh, of the contract, the terms of the agreement, uh, it also has this clause that requires the signatures. Uh, uh, Wilshire, uh, the full senior management approval uh, has to be on the contract uh, before it becomes bonding. So uh, Hunter signs, uh, signs the counteroffer. Now, so far, uh, whose offers are these? This is an important, uh, another important contract uh, issue. Uh, the October seventh, when Hunter signed the purchase, the original purchase agreement without Wilshire's signature on it, that became Hunter's um, proposal. Um, the first party to sign the contract uh, is the party who's making the proposal. Okay, so. Uh, the October 7, 2002 purchase agreement was actually, uh, under contract law, was actually Hunter's proposal to buy the house for one eighteen nine with a $500 deposit, and it will expire on October 9, 2002. Then the addendum to the purchase agreement that the real estate agent brought over on October 11th and Hunter signed, that was also... Hunter's proposal. Hunter then proposed to instead of buying it for one eighteen nine, we're going to buy it for one nineteen five, six thousand uh, dollars earnest money, and um, and the loan approval by ten thirty one or two. Those were all proposals by Hunter because Wilshire has not did not sign those contracts when it went over there. So that's that's something important to keep in mind if you're. In your regular course of business, if you um, are going to use contracts, written contracts, uh, you might want to send them over blank and let, uh, even though it's on your letterhead, that doesn't matter. If your client signs the contract first and then sends it back to you, it's their proposal. Even if it's on your letterhead, even if you prepared uh, prepared uh, the words that are on that uh, that that are on that document. That will be your client's proposal, not your proposal. And the other advantage that gives you is if uh, if it comes back, you're, you're, you you send the contract to your client, you fax it, you email it, and then they turn right around and send it back. Um, now you have the option of accepting their proposal or rejecting their proposal. So uh, it gives you a little bit of an advantage, but uh, you know sometimes that's that's not. Uh, that's that's not uh, a, 
serious consideration. Um, so, but that's just something to know that the first um, the first party or the party who first signs the agreement that is the party uh, making the offer. Okay, so on November fourth, uh, Hunter uh, the Hunter signed the counter offer and addendum. So now we go. Uh, we slide about a week to November thirteenth, two thousand and two. And uh, they make uh, in uh, Wilshire um, makes uh, detailed notes on the order in which uh, Wilshire uh, examined the, the the documents on November thirteenth at three p.m. Wilshire acknowledged uh, the receipt of the original purchase agreement from October seventh, but doesn't sign it. Uh, that same day, five minutes later, November 13th, 3.05 p.m., Wilshire signs the addendum to the purchase agreement. And then uh, 25 minutes later, November 13th at 3.30 p.m., Wilshire signs the counter offer. Now, in the meantime, from somewhere around October 11th, uh, to between October 11th and November 4th, Wilshire was busy. Uh, Wilshire hired a surveyor to go out and survey the property, and they also uh, hired a title company to uh, check the title on the property. And somewhere between October 11th and November 4th, when the uh, uh, counteroffer was brought over for Hunter to execute, uh, Wilshire found out that the survey revealed that the house was encroaching on the adjoining lot, so that's a major problem. And the title came back with the title company came back with uh, all kind of, with uh, clouds on the property, clouds on the property, um, liens, uh, mechanics liens, um, um, and so there were there were Wilshire at the Wilshire finds out between October 11th and November 4th that. Uh, Wilshire cannot convey clear title to this property. It cannot convey clear title to this property. Uh, and that is when they sent over the counteroffer and addendum. Uh, we'll pick up right there uh, after our break. Uh, this is the Surveyor's Hour on America's Web Radio. And a great one at that. Uh, I want to thank uh, Jeff for always doing a great job on the Surveyor's Hour and remind you that this is a good day to order those quick stakes. Get them in stock before the end of the year and write them off now. Also, uh, we've got great shows coming up. Uh, we've got uh, Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm with uh, Phil Farsberg and Colonel Phil Farsberg. And then we've got... Uh, Shows throughout the week that are just uh, incredible. We'll be talking about uh, what the newly elected could do to our health system on the doctor's lounge and totally destroy it. And uh, much, much more coming your way on America's Web Radio. And uh, let's get back to uh, Jeff. We're going to play a quick ID, and then we'll get back to Jeff and uh, keep working on this case. We're going to settle it one way or the other. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back, folks. This is um, your host, Jeff Lucas, on the Surveyor's Hour. All right, we're going to wrap this case up here. So um, uh, there were three documents, October 7th, a purchase agreement, Hunter signs it. October 11th, uh, um, Hunter signed an addendum to purchase agreement. And then between October 11th and November 4th, Woolshire was uh, was busy. Uh, found out that the uh, the house uh, he could not sell. They could not sell the house. I think Wilshire isn't a person. I think that's a company. Um, but uh, Wilshire couldn't sell the house uh, without clearing the title. So um, that's when they ran. They sent their real estate agent uh, back over November fourth with this counter offer that uh, first. Talked about it's part that it is a part of a contract that was dated ten thirty one oh two. That's that's just uh, that's uh, there is no contract dated ten thirty one oh two. That's just a uh, an well Hunter called it an ambiguity. That would uh, one of their arguments was this was an ambiguity, and uh, therefore um, we can. Um, we can talk about, we can bring in extrinsic evidence to uh, prove that the purchase agreement, the very first document, was valid. The other thing it did was it limited uh, Hunter's uh, remedy, sole remedy. Uh, normally, uh, kind of, all contract remedies would be open uh, to Hunter, but uh, the, the agreement, uh, the real estate purchase contract counteroffer and addendum limited uh, Hunter's remedies to just the return of his earnest money. That's it. So um, <clears throat> that that should have been a red flag right there. But uh, Hunter probably didn't have his an attorney with him. He definitely got an attorney when he when he sued Wilshire uh, over this whole deal. But um, you know. Um, they they uh, Wilshire slipped one um, you know one under uh, on uh, on Hunter here and he limited his remedies to six thousand dollars earnest money back and also um, Wilshire covered themselves by uh, the other term that uh, said that the contract was only valid if it was signed by all the parties um, and finally um, Wilshire in that counter offer. Uh, left itself an out. The contract was void if Wilshire can't convey good title, and Wilshire couldn't convey good title. So on November 13th at 3 o'clock, um, Wilshire acknowledged the uh, original purchase agreement. But that a purchase agreement um, died of its own accord on October 9th. It expired. Uh, it, it The agreement... Um, automatically expired two days later on October 9th, 2002. That agreement is dead and gone. It doesn't matter what the second agreement said, addendum to the purchase agreement. At that point in time on October 11th, there is no purchase agreement. It is dead. Um, so on November 13th at 3 p.m., Wilshire acknowledged the receipt of the purchase agreement. Okay, well, we received this. Received. Had a stamp. Received. Uh, November 13th, 3 p.m. Five minutes later, Wilshire signed the addendum, which changed the purchase price to one nineteen five, and required six thousand dollars in earnest money. Then, uh, at three thirty p.m., Wilshire signed the counteroffer, which um, 
require which um, which allowed Wilshire not to convey the property uh, if it could not convey good title. Um, the contract was only that then became valid on, on November thirteenth at three thirty. The counter offer became uh, valid because it had both the hunter's signatures on it and it had Wilshire's signature on it. Um, and at this point, at 3.30 p.m. on November 13th, uh, Wilshire can't convey the property, so they proffer uh, $106,000 back. Now, Hunter doesn't want $6,000 back. Hunter wants the house. The hunters want the house because they've been they've been out there uh, making improvements to the house. They they got the keys to the house. They they started making improvements on it. They, so now they're gonna now they're taking this. Now they're fully invested and they're taking this thing uh, eventually all the way up to the Alabama Supreme Court. So the hunters sued Wilshire and company um, primarily for specific performance. Um, we. We don't care if you can't clear the title. Uh, the purchase agreement, um, the addendum to the purchase agreement said uh, $119,500, uh, $6,000 earnest money, and we've done that, and um, it doesn't matter if you can't uh, if, if you can't deliver a good title or not. You're going to have to make it, uh, make the title good, uh, and you're going to, you're going to have to sell us this house. Uh, and so the, the purchase agreement's dead. It died on October 9th. So now the second agreement, which was uh, fully executed on November 13th, um, allowed for $6,000 earnest money. But the following document, the last document, the November 4th counteroffer, which was signed on November 13th by Wilshire, uh, then changed all of the remedies, changed all of the contract remedies to just one. If we can't convey... Or if we don't sign this contract, we're going to give you your six thousand dollars money back. And so that's what they did. And they went uh, all the way up uh, on appeal. They went all the way up to the Alabama Supreme Court. And in a footnote, uh, two footnotes to the opinion. This is the Alabama uh, Supreme Court, basically uh, talking to us, the readers of this opinion. Uh, footnote number four: The addendum increased the price from one nineteen five. Uh, uh, increased the purchase price to one nineteen five. Increased the amount of earnest money to six thousand. Required the hunters to provide a pre-qualification letter within five days, and required full loan approval by October thirty first, two thousand two. And stated that Wilshire would credit the hunters four hundred for the purchase of the home warranty. Had. Uh, Footnote number five. The hunters do not allege in their complaint. Okay. So they never, this is the court talking to us, the, the readers of this opinion. Um, this is, uh, the, the court's telling us what they did not allege. The hunters do not allege in their complaint or on appeal that Wilshire presented the counter offer because the title binder identified defects in the title to the property. Nor do they allege that Wilshire breached the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealings when it presented the counteroffer on the same day the insurer insured uh, issued the title binder. 
There is an implied covenant that neither party shall do anything which will have the effect of destroying or injuring the rights of the other party to receive the fruits of the contract. In every contract, there exists an implied covenant of good faith and fair dealings. They didn't argue that. Now, you can't read this case and think that uh, Wolfshire was acting fairly uh, or in good faith. The hunters were, were in, uh, in good faith. I mean, they, 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 were, they were in the house. They were making improvements to the house. And they had gone along all, uh, with all three agreements. They had signed all three agreements. And uh, Wilshire then sat down on November 13th in order, uh, dispatched of the purchase agreement, signed the addendum to the purchase agreement, and then signed the counteroffer. And so the only two valid contracts were the um, were the addendum to purchase agreement and the real estate purchase contract counter offer and addendum. Those are the only two valid uh, contracts in this whole case. And Hunter uh, and the Hunter's attorneys never argued that uh, this implied covenant of of uh, good faith and fair dealings is implied. So that means that. It's written in the contract, um, even though uh, the words aren't there. This is one of the, this is an implied remedy. So, uh, ostensibly, it would have superseded the sole remedy to return the six thousand dollars in earnest money, but we don't know. But the Supreme Court's telling us about it. So, why are they telling us about it? Um, to help us understand contract law. When uh, parties execute successive agreements and the two agreements cover the same subject matter and include inconsistent terms, the latter agreement supersedes the earlier agreement. Okay. All right. Well, that pretty much, uh, for this program, that pretty much wraps up the uh, the contract issues. Uh, there's a few other things we'll talk about. Um, uh, this, again, this is... Uh, Better business practices in the law. Uh, one of the things that, um, and we're coming up on a break here pretty soon, I'm, I'm sure, but uh, I'll mention this. I kind of skipped over this at the beginning. Is uh, and this has to do with uh, better business practices. Um, my my undergraduate degree is is in business. I didn't have the um, I didn't have the opportunity to. Um, uh, to get a sort of a geomatics degree or an engineering degree, but I did have an opportunity to get a business degree, so um, uh, I went with that. And uh, one of the things they talked us, uh, they taught us in business law is uh, find a niche and exploit it. Find a niche and exploit it. Um, the surveying profession has a niche. The surveying profession has a niche. The question is, why aren't we exploiting that niche? And uh, we we will get to that point when we come back uh, after our break. Uh, this is um, Jeff Lucas on the Surveyor's Hour, and we'll be back in a moment. Quick Stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have Quick Stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying Quick Stakes. Did you know that Quick Stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? 
lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden steak. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick Steaks, your bike-friendly steak. Hey guys, it's Minister Frankie with Shine His Light Ministries. It's getting cold outside and winter is coming. It's time to shine a little light on our friends on the street. We're collecting blankets and coats for the homeless all winter long. Please donate by going to our website at www.shinehislightministry.com or text 770-655-8055. Hope you all have a happy Thanksgiving and a very Merry Christmas. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, folks. This is the Surveyor's Hour on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Lucas. Okay. Um, all right. We were talking right before the break about um, uh, about business practices. And, uh, and again, as I said, one of the things they taught us in, in business school was uh, find a niche and exploit it. Well, the serving profession has a niche. Um, I've got some 2008 Labor Department statistics here. They're a little bit dated, but probably... Um, things have probably have not changed uh, that dramatically, uh, so we'll just use these. Um, the uh, the Labor Department looked at uh, geospatial occupations. Uh, geospatial uh, includes geographic information um, uh, tech, uh, technologist um, systems, tech, uh, geographic information systems technicians, mapping technicians. Surveying technicians, precision, uh, agricultural technicians, remote sensing technicians, geodetic surveyors, licensed surveyors, remote sensing scientists and technologists, cartographers, and photogrammetrists. Um, the Labor Department uh, brought that uh, total to about 857,000 um, occupations under the overall geospatial uh, umbrella, 857,000. Uh, so those numbers today are probably a little bit different, but percentage-wise, probably not much. Um, the percentage could actually be a little bit lower. When you look at just licensed surveys, okay, that's 7% of, uh, roughly 7% of 857,000. Of those 857,000 occupations uh, in, under that uh, overall geospatial umbrella, uh, licensed surveyors make up 7%. And there's only one thing that we can do that nobody else in the geospatial community can do. We have a niche. The only thing that the surveyors can do that nobody else 
the geospatial community can do is to make a determination of where property lines are located on the ground. That's the surveyors, as far as geospatial um, 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 occupations go, geospatial professionals go. Surveyors are the only ones licensed and sanctioned by the state. In the first instance, before this thing goes to court, in the first instance, surveyors are the only people, licensed surveyors are the only people who can make a determination of where property lines are located on the ground. That's called a niche. That's called a niche. And and generally, uh, from a business uh, point of view, generally a niche is uh, that, that you exploit uh, is able uh, is, it, it brings a, a larger return uh, on um, uh, on that service. Uh, you should be getting a larger return on that service. Um, if you uh, if we look at um, uh, and I did a CLE continuing legal education seminar. Uh, several years ago, and um, the Cobb value curve uh, curve was uh, introduced to me, uh, and this was a, uh, a Mr. Cobb, and I have permission to uh, Cobb from CobbConsulting.com. Uh, I got written permission to uh, to use his uh, value curve in this program that I do, Better Business Practices in the Law. He, he was he was uh, looking at. Uh, these same types of issues with the legal community, um, and and he he described four uh, types of services in the legal community. Uh, the 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 one that uh, um, that brings back the uh, the greatest value for the practitioner, uh, he calls the nuclear event. Uh, at that, uh, if if a client with with means is in the nuclear event, okay. Um, money is no object. Money is no object, and so he has a he has a uh, his scale, his uh, vertical scale goes from um, you know high value uh, uh, at the top to no value at the bottom. Okay, so that's a vertical scale. His horizontal scale goes from uh, goes left to right from zero uh, percent of the profession. Um, to the right, uh, a full 100% of the profession, and his curve starts uh, at the top of the uh, of the vertical scale, and then swoops down like a like a slide out to the 100%, where it's very very low. Um, and <clears throat> so, hopefully, you're envisioning this to a certain extent. But the point is, there. There, the niche service in the legal profession is called, according to Mr. Cobb, the nuclear event. And there's a very, very small percentage of attorneys in the United States of America that can handle the nuclear event. O.J. Simpson was in the nuclear event. Uh, money was no object until he ran out of money. Money was no object. There's only a few uh, attorneys in the United States, uh, I, I think he put the percentage somewhere between two and three percent. Maybe it was three to four percent uh, of the attorneys uh, in the United States of America can handle the nuclear event, and they're making uh, thousands of dollars an hour. Okay, uh, the next coming down the slide um, 
close to the midpoint, vertical midpoint, is the uh, the attorneys who are hired for their experience. Okay, these are very good attorneys. Uh, they're they're um, you know they they their offices are in the high rise. They have the mahogany paneling. Uh, they know what they're doing. They're hired. Uh, their clients uh, hire them uh, because they know what they're doing. Uh, their value is still um, is still relatively high, um, but um, uh, not. Uh, uh, but they're hired. You know, these are the these are the um, you know the thousand dollar an hour, maybe two thousand dollar an hour attorneys. But we're still above the midpoint vertically. When you get to the midpoint, uh, price becomes uh, starts to become sensitive. So. Uh, coming down the curve past the vertical midpoint and heading to the, we're heading to the right we're heading to 100 uh, percent are brand name services this this is about um, this constitutes uh, about 40 percent of the uh, of of the um, professionals of uh, professional service providers uh, legal professional service providers um, then after that, uh, and price becomes more sensitive, uh, and uh, the, the curve can either be uh, relatively flat or can or can be sharp, depending on the client's uh, the client's buying power. Uh, and then finally, at the end, as the as the slide tapers off uh, and almost becomes um, almost becomes horizontal, out at the end when we're at the last. Um, 100% of the profession, uh, those are called uh, commodity services. And you know you have a commodity service. The hallmarks of a commodity service are service provider is irrelevant. So uh, this curve starts uh, at the very high end of, of value uh, vertically, the nuclear event, and then the curve, um, uh, then the curve like a slide just pitches down and heads out to commodity services. Nuclear event, hired for, for experience, brand name services, and then commodity services. And in the legal profession, commodity services are legal zoom. Legal zoom is the, um, um, and, and, and what they are able to offer are commodity services because the service provider doesn't matter. If you're going to legal zoom instead of a, a live professional, then the service provider doesn't matter. This is, this would be wills. Um, maybe uh, LLCs, uh, little incorporations, um, living wills, uh, other other deeds. You don't you don't need a you don't need a uh, uh, a licensed attorney to pre- prepare a deed for you. You could prepare your own deeds as long as there's not a mortgage company involved. Because if there's a mortgage company involved, you don't have to hire an attorney, but the closing attorney will be working for the mortgage company. Um, so commodity services. Um, the legal profession, though, didn't turn their nuclear event into commodity services, which is actually what we uh, have done uh, in the land surveying profession. Uh, we have taken a niche, exclusive niche service, Okay, I'm getting some kind of beep in my ear. I don't know what that's all about. Uh, we took uh, ex- uh, an exclusive niche uh, that only we can do, 
property boundary surveying, and we turned it into a commodity um, that is among the cheapest among the cheapest of all of the services offered in the geospatial community. A boundary survey, property boundary survey. The only thing cheaper uh, in the uh, geospatial community uh, is um, uh, then a property boundary surveying is, um, is is Google Earth. I mean, it's free. Google Earth is free. So uh, what, what we've done is we've taken uh, a great business model and we've turned it upside down. And, and how did we do that? We, well, we did that. We've talked about this on this program on many occasions. We did that by allowing um, uh, by allowing some of the most uh, unfit surveyors to do the most important work that we do. And the most important work that we do, of course, is surveying property boundaries. Uh, that's the, that's our that's our equivalent to open heart surgery. Um, property boundary surveying. Um, and the only way to the only way to solve that, uh, I think, is uh, where we're going to have to have. Uh, we, we need a new practice model. We need a tiered, probably a, a tiered license uh, that um, uh, that that requires uh, additional training, specialization, uh, dealing with uh, property founders. All right. Well, I don't know how long we we got just a couple of minutes, maybe a minute here before we wrap this program up. Um, next week we'll move on to another topic where I'll have a guest uh, and so I hope um, you all had a nice uh, Thanksgiving holiday we, we, we're going we're gonna to call this a wrap on better business practices in the law there's a few other things I could have talked about but um, I think I got my point across uh, the points across that I wanted to get across so I hope uh, all of you out there have a uh, have a great uh, rest of your week and um, enjoy some football this weekend if uh, that's your pleasure. And we will be back uh, next Monday. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.